the stories that we tell about the protection of our natural habitats and about wildlife have never been more important. We, we have never had an audience more ready to listen to us than we have at this point in history because COVID-19 literally stopped the entire world. And if we do not stop messing with nature and stop messing with, with wildlife, this is, how, this is the, the world's or nature's final written warning to us that we have to change. Everybody wants to go back to normal. You know, no, it, it's, you will, we'll never go back to normal. The world has changed and we've got to change along with it. And so is our behaviors when it, when it comes to storytelling, when it comes to including local filmmakers, when it comes to capacitating local filmmakers, when it's, it comes to creating access and opportunity. Those are the things that we need to do as a matter of urgency, because like I say, there is no more important time in history than now. Hello and welcome to the Sustainable Jungle podcast. I'm Lyle and today we are speaking with director, storyteller and National Geographic Society COVID-19 Emergency Fund recipient, Noel Koch. Noel is the co-founder and executive director of Nature, Environment and Wildlife Filmmakers, an organization dedicated to discovering and supporting Africa's emerging talent. We discuss Noel's winding career path, the challenge of finding black African filmmakers and the importance of enabling the next generation of storytellers to positively shape our natural world through film. Fundamentally, Noel answers the question we're all asking. How do you change the story? As always, you can find the show notes for this episode, including all relevant links over at sustainablejungle.com forward slash podcast. Listeners, I give you Noel Cock. Noel, it is fantastic to meet you. Thank you so much for joining us on our show. How are you today? Hey, Lyle, I'm fantastic. Really great to chat to you from a warm, sunny South Africa. Um, I'm out here in St. Lucia. Yeah. And so such, such a privilege to be here with you guys today. Uh, thanks a lot, Noel. Yeah, we're really, really excited to, to share your story and learn all about um, what you've been up to. Um, but before we get into all of that, let's start with a little bit of background. Can you tell us where you were born and where did you grow up? So I was born in the outskirts of the city of Durban uh, and grew up in Durban like the first sort of 18 years of my life and then eventually went to after after high school went to university uh, dropped out and went to Johannesburg for another big large portion of my life I see and now I'm back in Durban <laughs> okay so, so you, you've gone full circle right yes yes <laughs> okay excellent well perhaps you can tell us then about your career path I, I from from my reading you've had a pretty winding road and and even at one stage you hadn't you were studying law and then had an epiphany and then that took you in another direction <laughs> can you please expand on that well you know you know you, we, we grow up on on television you know uh, watching what we see on television and um, you know LA law uh, and those kind of things and you know uh, because I'm a, I'm a I, I speak a lot at school, every time everybody asked me what you want to do or be, 
Uh, I said, I want to be a lawyer. And now, you know, all our, our guidance teachers or the teachers were like, yeah, you make a great lawyer. <laughs> Little did I know that in South Africa, your, your ability to speak and your, your, your uh, passion or, or personality means little. You need to be an absolute bookworm in the beginning because it's, you know, it's a, a, we, I think we are constitutional law. And so I got to university, you know, and it's blood, sweat and tears to get there. Uh, and I was bored out of my mind. And I was, I, you know, every, every month I would go back and I, I, was, I was literally dying inside. <laughs> and I just had absolutely no passion for it. And eventually I summed up the courage to go home to my parents. You know, I come from a family of 10. I was the first person to, first one in the entire family to go to university. It, it, it was tough. It, you know, we were, we grew up very poor, um, you know, and, you know, it wasn't heard of that you would be able to have the money to go to university. And, and so it made my decision even harder because to go back home and say that I'm dropping out uh, because I've made the wrong choice uh, was, was really, really tough. And I eventually put my thumb out and hiked and went up to Johannesburg uh, to go and, you know, to the city of gold to go and look for a job. So, so you now are in Johannesburg. What do you do next? <laughs> Back then, oh jeepers, it, it, you know, unfortunately we're still talking about the times of apartheid uh, at that time. Um, and one of the first jobs I got in Johannesburg was as an usher cleaner in a cinema. Yeah, and fast forward about eight, nine years later, I became one of the first black directors in the cinema business. Wow. Uh, in South Africa. Uh, yeah, and, um, and, and like you said, my, my life took a whole lot of meanders and, and that kind of stuff. And after that, I, I went into the music business and I had my own record label, uh, independent record label, for a while in South Africa, you know, at that particular point, I left, I left the cinema business because of a tragedy that struck me in my life and went into the music business, not because that's, I had a passion for it, but it was part of the healing process and that kind of stuff. And I, unfortunately, I really didn't enjoy that, that, that part of my, or that time of my life. Um, in 2010, I wanted to get into um, documentary filmmaking. Um, and because we were in the music business and doing music videos and that kind of stuff, I had, I had developed a passion for media and for storytelling at that particular point. Uh, and so opened up a production company starting to do uh, music documentaries. And then, but all my life growing up, I always had a passion for wildlife. And it's something that happened uh, I, the passion developed when I was about six or seven years old. And I always wanted to do a story or, or get into storytelling around nature and wildlife. Can you recall, Noel, your sort of first moment in nature? What, what sparked that um, passion? Essentially, I was playing. It was, I was about six or seven years old. I was playing outside a parking lot, uh, a dusty parking lot out of a shop, outside a shopping center. And this lady and her two daughters walked down um, towards their car. 
And as they walked past me, I greeted them and she stopped, she smiled and she gave me 20 cents. At that point, uh, this was like late 1970s. At that point, I thought I was a millionaire. You know? <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, and as she drove off, at the back of a car was a sticker and it said, save the rhino. And at that point, that was my first encounter with the rhino. Huh. I'd never seen it. I'd never know. I didn't even know that animal existed. And so naturally, because of that experience and that interaction, the rhino became, I started looking for the rhino on every single card that I saw. Uh, and, but one of the biggest challenges is every, t or one of the biggest things is every time I saw that sticker on a car, uh, before I say that, the lady who stopped and gave me 20 cents, she was white. She was a white South African. And I mentioned that, I mentioned that because after this, I started looking for the rhino, that rhino sticker on, on bumper sticker on every car that I could see. And every time I saw that bumper sticker on the car, um, the occupants of the car were always white. So as a black South African growing up at that time, I came to the conclusion that the rhino was not our animal. It was, it had nothing to do with us. And that it was a white people thing. You know, and then fast forward to my first job and the first kind of money that I had, uh, or kind first time I had any kind of spare money. The first thing I wanted to do was go and see a rhino in the flesh. And and what age did you achieve that? Yo, about twenty at yeah. So I think I was twenty seven years old. So about twenty years later, it took me twenty years. I mean, this is. I mean, isn't that just. And this will we'll circle back to this because this is an important point that you were just telling me yeah. about before we hit record. Um, but before yeah. we before we get to that, Noel, please carry on. So so um, you you're in Johannesburg. Fast forward, you you were sick of the music career, and that is when you decided to focus on making wildlife documentaries. Well, like I say, at that point, it was easy to segue from 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 a record label into doing music documentaries and or music videos. But like I said, I didn't particularly enjoy the music industry, particularly yeah, in South Africa. It's really tough, really, you know, you know not, as, not as lucrative as it is in other countries. And so I always had this link to the rhino. And back in 2014, I was in Johannesburg uh, at Oartambo Airport. I'd missed the flight. Uh, and so sitting there and I looked at this bedazzled rhino sitting in the, in the, in, at, you know, at the airport and I wondered what it was and went up and read. And that's when I realized that rhino poaching had reared its ugly head again in South Africa, particularly, and that our rhino were being slaughtered. And I sat there at the airport and I looked at it and I thought, wow, you know, fantastic place to raise funds but if you're trying to you know the the rhino are being killed the parks are all in the rural areas of south africa the rhino are being killed in those particular areas the people who live around those areas most of them do not fly and if they are going to be the last line of defense for those animals we need to get the messaging to them and like we were chatting earlier, in South Africa, the only program, if you did not have satellite TV to watch, uh, uh, satellite TV like DSTV to watch National Geographic and 
discovery, the only access to a nature and wildlife program was 50-50, which is in Afrikaans on SABC2. And so the majority of South Africans that live around the park, that message is not getting to them. Mm. And we need, for me sitting there, I thought to myself, but those are the people that need to join this fight to save the rhino. Yeah. Those are people, and for me, I was slightly frustrated in that because I knew that uh, the people around the park love, you know, you know, we've always lived in, Africans have always lived in harmony with, with wildlife and with nature. Yeah. That's why we are the only continent left with all our megafauna, you know. Um, and, and so, you know, I thought to myself, you know, there must be some, we've got to change the way we are communicating to uh, the people that live around the parks. And so there and then I sat and wrote a concept for a television series, which I plan to go and pitch to the national broadcaster. Uh, and I wanted the conservation wildlife series to be in 70% Zulu. Uh, at first, everybody laughed at me because they thought it's, it's not going to work. It's not going to happen. Um, but we produced it. We produced the television show in 2015 and it did very well in terms of ratings and that kind of stuff. But the show practically bankrupted my, my, my wife and I, my wife and I are partners in, in, in the production company and it practically bankrupted, bankrupted us. One, because to be honest, we weren't, we weren't uh, the most experienced nature and wildlife filmmakers. We were kind of just going into it. Um, so we made a lot of mistakes. But more importantly, one of our biggest challenges, and it's like I was saying, it's almost ridiculous to say this, but as one of our biggest challenges was access to wildlife and access to scientists and conservation, you know, in, in Africa, <laughs> you know, it's, it's almost mad to, to be saying that. But as black Africans, one of our biggest challenges is access to wildlife. For our international listeners, what do you mean by that? You're, you're African, you're living in Africa, you know, why can't you go and see wildlife just like any other white South African or privileged South African? Well, you can, you can now. I mean, for, for many years, it was not open to, to, to um, everybody, okay? One of the biggest challenges with wildlife and access to wildlife was never even within our culture. You must remember, all our parks were proclaimed as in uh, they decided that they will move you. If you lived on this land, they would remove you from this land and put you on the outside, fence it off, and say, this is now to protect the animals. Whether you had your ancestors living there, no matter who you had living there. And when you did that, suddenly you saw the only people that would now go into those parks that got fenced off were white people, unfortunately. And they would drive in with their fancy four by fours and that kind of stuff. And so imagine as a community living outside where you were dispossessed of your land, you're now living on the outside, and this is what you see. Okay, and so there was a, a level of animosity towards game reserves and nature reserves, etc. Number one. Number two, in terms of uh, one of the challenges now in modern day South Africa, in terms of challenges in access to wildlife, is you know, if I'm trying to tell a story about uh, conservation and wildlife, and I'm, I, I want to try and portray black African heroes because my audience is black African. You know, and, 
access to parks that are either led by or have black African scientists or vets is almost impossible in South Africa. I just can't, I mean, that is just uh, an indictment of how badly skewed the proportion should be where South Africa is a majority black population and yet you're telling me you could not find those individuals. You know, we, and since, uh, this is back in 2015. Okay? Which, which is not that and long ago, right? Not that long no, ago, not at all. Five, six years, five all, years. You know, you know, but like I say, I was, my, the next thing I was going to say was instead of, you know, frustrated and instead of walking away with our tails between our legs, we thought, no, we've got to do something. You know, we've got to do something to change this. There were, uh, they, you know, the issue was conservation, conservation, nature and wildlife storytelling were just sitting ducks. They were the least transformed sectors in the country. They were sitting ducks for radicals to come and say, this doesn't work for us. Why are we protecting natural habitats? Why are we, you know, so we needed to do something at that particular point because we're saying film and television in Africa is booming. There are kids coming out of AFTA, black kids coming out of AFTA, you know, every single year, but none of them are going into nature and wildlife documentary because it's one, it's not in, you know, it's not in our culture. It's we did not grow up watching it unless we had, we were affluent enough to have uh, satellite television or access to a national geographic. Um, Which very and, few were. And all, I'll just quickly interject for, for those who don't know, AFTA is, would you say, Noel, it's South Africa's <laughs> premier, premier film school, right? Film and television school. Yes, it is. Right, yeah. Sorry, Correct. carry on. Yeah. You know, and, and, and AFTA is, has got, like I'm saying, AFTA particularly has got a number of black Africans coming out of it, uh, you know, graduating out of it every year. But almost none of them are going into nature and wildlife. And we, we, we desperately needed to, you know, if you're going to defend... Uh, nature and wildlife. We need to get black Africans telling those stories. If you look, like I say, the world uses so much of Africa's nature and wildlife, but you, you don't find, whether it's South Africa or the rest of Africa, we are still always being portrayed as rangers, guides, or people who sing for you when you jump off your safari vehicle. You know, but there are hundreds you know, when we started looking, we started finding, initially it was really tough, but now we're starting to find so many talented, passionate, young, black, African, even especially female conservationists and scientists, you know. Um, remind me but just now to tell you about our Wild Woman Media Lab that we had last year, which was... Um, you know, 10 different women from seven different countries in Africa, most of them scientists um, that came together for a storytelling workshop. You know, so we, Afri we are more than just rangers, guide, uh, rangers and guides, but that's all we seem to be portrayed in any of the stories that are produced. So how do we change those particular stories? And that was part of my talk at, at, at National Geographic's uh, Storytelling Summit where I asked the question in terms of how do you change the story? You change the storyteller. And that's what we did as an organization. Uh, what we decided to do as an organization or, or back in 2017, we established the organization NUF. 
nature, environment, and wildlife filmmakers. And with the um, objective to you know, developing Africa's next generation of nature, environment, and wildlife filmmakers, impacting conservation through film. Um, and you know, the idea was to attract young black Africans into this um, um, genre of storytelling, to appeal to the established nature and wildlife filmmakers, the white, white established nature and wildlife filmmakers across Africa to say, guys, he has an opportunity, come and form partnership with us, come and uh, transfer the skills that you've had, come and mentor some of, the, some of the new guys. And so many of them have taken up that call. So many of them have joined us internationally. We, you know, we are supported by National Geographic Society. We are a sister festival of Jackson Wild, uh, the Jackson Wild Summit, who you know, have, have looked at this and said, you know, it is absolutely important. If we are going to, you know, everybody, you know, the, the buzzword is diversity, diversity, diversity. And that's great. Diversity is great in terms of, yes, we've got to change the numbers and we've got to change this particular landscape. But it's not just about diversity. It's about diversity, inclusion, and equity. And inclusion is not just who is attending the Congress or who's there, it's who's speaking in the room, you know? And so thank you very much for giving us this opportunity, you know, today, because again, it's, it's being able to speak in the room that creates that change, that inspires that change or makes people stop and think and say, okay, you know, maybe we can, maybe we can do this differently. And one of our biggest challenges whilst doing this, um, is that we constantly are aware and sensitive to the fact that people will, there are people that are going to feel like they are being othered or that we are creating this othering sort of scenario where we keep on saying black African, or, you know, that's why we keep, I keep on, or I, in everything that we do, we keep saying, we are asking people to come and join us, come and partner with us so that we can fix you know, nature and wildlife filmmaking has been an extractive industry for far too long, you know, and we, we need people to come and join us to change that. I love that. I absolutely love that. Yeah. I want to dive a little bit deeper into NUF and to understand yeah. the, different, the different limbs of NUF. Should we start with Congress? Can you explain to us what is Congress? What is the aim of it? Who can be a part of it? Anything else you want to add? When we started out in 2017, we thought, we, we, was, we were saying we need to, you know, in Africa, there was no place for nature and wildlife filmmakers to meet, discuss issues about the industry, um, you know, look at the trends, that kind of stuff, etc. So we, we said we need to create, uh, we need to start, a, a, create something. And we, there was a lot of debate of whether we start a festival, a nature and wildlife festival, and when we looked at that, we thought, hold on, whose films will we show if we start a nature and wildlife festival? There's going to be no African films in there, um, you know. And so I did, let us start a Congress, a Congress that gets people to come together to discuss, to analyze the industry, to talk about the industry, to motivate change, to inspire change, to, you know, look at the trends and, and for us to learn from. 
you know, and so that's when that in July of 2017, we conceptualized the organization in January of 2017. In July of 2017, we started, we launched our first new, our first annual new Congress in Durban, South Africa. We quickly realized that we can't just be an event, that um, the specialized skills uh, in nature and wildlife filmmaking meant that if we're going to bring black Africans into this field, we need to fast track a lot of that skills development and capacity building. And so what, what turned out, what was planned to be an annual event quickly turned out to, to be an all year round impact outreach, uh, impact and outreach organization. So every year in July, we bring international, local, um, international and, and African filmmakers together to connect, to reach out, um, to, to, to uh, find common ground, to discuss the next trends, to uh, collaborate, to create partnerships. And, you know, the first year we had about 100, 120 delegates. Uh, the second year we went up to about 180. In 2019, we had uh, 250 delegates um, and we thinking that's more or less where we want to try and cap it. We don't want to get too big because we've created a sense of family and community in addition to a, a um, global partners. Um, we have also created a global community of underrepresented voices um, that are supporting each other in the, in the industry. We have a lot of delegates from, from India, we, who, who attend Congress, because we find that the challenges in these underrepresented um, countries are almost the same, you know? And, and so we, 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 we're creating the support structure and the support base, um, you know, to support each other in terms of the industry, but also to support each other in terms of protecting our natural habitat. And so Congress is this annual event where we bring everybody together. We, and, and like I say, we've been really successful in terms of being able to create this global family united in storytelling uh, and impacting conservation. And so from Congress, like I said, where we quickly realized that we needed to be an all round impact and, and um, outreach organization. We then, when we looked at it, we then decided, okay, we need to also create programs that fast track and develop the skills of these young emerging filmmakers. Because clearly there's, clearly there's an interest here. You've got people knocking at the door to attend, but now you need to pass along the skills. Absolutely. One example of how that happens, and like I mentioned earlier, the, these are specialized skills. Uh, but something ridiculous that happened at Congress 2018 we, we were having an ocean theme and we, Africa is surrounded by over 30,000 kilometers of coastline. And so we thought, you know, let's have a panel to explore whether as Africans, we are using this resource or, um, you know, for storytelling. What else can we do? What are the barriers to entry, et cetera? And we just naturally assumed when we put the panel together that 
we would be able to put a black African underwater filmmaker on the panel. To our shock and horror, we searched the entire continent and eventually we found one in Kenya. And even he will tell you that he, he didn't have all the necessary equipment and experience. But it was mind boggling to realize that. There are many black African divers across Africa who work in the diving industry and that kind of stuff. But there were no black African underwater filmmakers. How do, you know, we can't save what we can't see, you know? Uh, and if we, don't, if we don't understand the majesty and the beauty and the wonder uh, that exists underneath the surface of the ocean, you know, how are you gonna inspire me to protect it? And, and it was, it was and, and that's why also the stories that we know about the ocean and about, you know, did not have us in. You know, it, 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 we, weren't, uh, we weren't connected to it. It was always rather about work, about hardship, um, you know, that linked to the ocean. Uh, yet, you know, we, we are connected to it. You know, like I say, the entire continent is surrounded by the ocean, you know, and it was just mind boggling. And so we quickly realized that we've got to fix this. If you can't have a continent of Africa without African underwater filmmakers, you know, number one. Number two, how do we create job opportunities and, 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 and access, et cetera, for these, these, these African filmmakers? If somebody wants to do a Blue Planet 3 um, and then says, okay, let's put some diversity in it. And then are there any underwater filmmakers? And nope. if they aren't available, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So what we've done is we've started something called Newf Underwater Filmmakers Labs, where we send call outs and we fund a program where we take aspiring uh, or emerging black African filmmakers um, and we teach them how to dive. But they get an international qualification uh, uh, and proper diving certification. And whilst they're doing that, again, we get mentors from the industry who come and bring the, and I mean, the underwater housing stuff is absolutely ridiculous in terms of price. I mean, half the, the, the housings are more expensive than the, than the camera most of the time. Um, so that's another big challenge, uh, you know, for, 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 um, for these young filmmakers. So yes, we get a lot of um, uh, mentors who come whilst they're learning how to dive, who help them uh, who teach them in terms of camera, in terms of editing uh, for underwater. And the plan is to continue those programs and to capacitate as many or, or a select group who can go through the process, who can get, because the other thing is it's, it's one thing sending them on a course, et cetera, but if they don't have continued access and continued opportunity to continue diving, it's not going to, you know, you're going to lose that impact. Absolutely. You know, uh, because you need those hours underwater. And the more you dive with the camera and use the camera underwater, the more professional and, 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 and um, you know, uh, strong you get with it. So um, we, we started this in 2019. Uh, we've had three underwater filmmakers labs. We last year we produced our first film from that from that particular process, but it is 
you know, that's the sort of new frontier, you know, in terms of African storytelling for us, you know, in that we need the oceans, our oceans are in peril. Let's, let's, let's make no mistake about that. And we need to have an army of black Africans advocating for the protection of it. Okay. The only way we're going to do it is by being able to tell our stories and by able, being able to put our, our um, stories into those particular stories. I'll give you an example. So often when Wales Beach, we see people trying to push them back into the ocean and crying and putting towels on them, etc. Um, one of the best storytellers in South Africa, her name is Mamkina Mutope. Um, she tells a beautiful story about how our elders used to inspire us not to pollute the rivers. And it was a story about, about whales. So Africans do eat whale meat, but they only eat the whale meat when a whale gets beached. We do not go out and hunt whales. And when a whale beaches, it is regarded as a sacrifice, as an, it's, it's regarded as an, as an honor for that particular community. Because the whales migrate up from Antarctica, up the east coast of Africa every year to come and have their babies here. They come and have their babies here because they know it's the safest place, because they know that Africans will not attack them. But as they pass the rivers, as they're coming up the east coast of Africa, as they pass the rivers, African folklore says that the whale will beach at the community that has polluted the least and that has protected the, the river the most. And so it is an honor and a gift from the whales when they beach. That story, whether, so scientists would listen to that story and tell me I'm talking absolute nonsense, <laughs> right? But, yep. but as an inspiration for a little kid not to pollute the river, I'd rather hear that story than a scientist telling me that I shouldn't pollute. You're right, and it would have a bigger impact. Absolutely. What I want to try and tie that into is the development fund of NUF. That's additional arm. Is that also used as a means to uh, try to encourage or, or, or enable black African filmmakers to create films much like the Filmmaker's Land, the Underwater Filmmaker's Land? Yeah. So, in, like I said to you in 2017, when we were saying, should we have a festival or should we have a, a congress? And then we said, whose films will we show? We looked at it and we thought, okay, how do we fast track this? How do we get uh, emerging filmmakers? And in this case, I'm going to say emerging filmmakers because yes, there's a focus on black Africans, but there were also very little female, white or black filmmakers in, that, in this particular field. And so we said, what are we going to do in terms of trying to, you know, we need to find funding where we can, uh, fund um, young filmmakers to produce a short, a nature and wildlife short. And whilst producing that short, we would then get industry professionals to come and mentor them and help them in terms of story, structure, editing, etc. right up until uh, after the film was produced, um, get it um, distributed, um, 
firstly on national television and then as well as to festivals around the world um, because, you know, and show them the kind of career path that exists and give them a kind of experience uh, in terms of producing your first film. And so we lobby a number of our funders locally and internationally who um, assist us and they, they want a grant of about 3,500 US dollars each to make their first short film. And it's roughly about between eight and 10 minutes long. In 2017, we had none. This last year at Congress 2020, whilst we had Congress on DSTV, we had our own new short film festival showcasing 15 films that we had funded from the, the new development fund um, over the last three years. That's exciting. And I, I believe some of them, and we talked about this earlier, but some of them were even screened on 50-50, right? Exactly. All of them were screened on 50 oh, All of them. Wow, that's fantastic. Can you, can you give us an idea of maybe a standout that comes to mind? Um, you asking a mother to choose the, uh, her favorite. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. No, no, we can move on. Don't worry. <laughs> no, but the other beautiful thing about fifty about the fifty fifty agreement or with the SABC is they weren't just screened; they were licensed by the by fifty fifty. So they got they got paid for that broadcast. Even better, you know. Even even better, and. They've, so they've all been broadcast, and that's one of the most, the other important things is so often nature and wildlife films get made in Africa, but the communities that they are made in never get to see them because they get, that's why I get back to how it's always been an extractive industry where they get made here, yeah, but the Africans don't see it and they get made for international audiences. So one of the provisions that we make with, with our young filmmakers is that at least there will be one broadcast on national television here in, in, in this case in South Africa. Now we've got a few more African winners. So at least in their country or well, in Africa, um, that's one of the provisions that we make. Because it has to be financially sustainable. As you were saying, you yes. need to create uh, not only the funding, but and the development and those sorts of opportunities, but also, I guess, impart the financial side, which uh, is, is really important to make this a sustainable future for these emerging filmmakers. Absolutely. And, you know, and it is, it is a lucrative part of storytelling. It's a very lucrative sort of uh, genre in, in, in filmmaking. It's tough, it's hard, uh, and the barriers of entry are really high. But if you are successful, you know, you can make um, because the skills are fairly specialized, etc., you can make a, a, a decent living out of it. And so it's important that they understand all those elements and that they do acquire all the skills, um, you know, etc. But like I was saying, in terms of uh, the barriers to entry, the, one of the biggest challenges for us is access to, uh, and, as, and as part of these labs, is access to the, te to the uh, camera equipment. You know, it's, it's, because we need to give them that experience on these cameras so that when international crews come, I mean, COVID's a perfect example. The world can't travel. Uh, everybody, people can't even go to the cinemas. So now content is vital. People are stuck in their homes. They, they, they want to consume content. Um, and so many of these international production teams cannot travel. Imagine if you had trained 
uh, a group of Africans. They could have been filming for you every single day and completing your projects and sending you the content back to where you are. And, and probably be a whole lot cheaper, you know, reasonable, <laughs> reasonable. You want to charge reasonable fees here, but do you know what I mean? Then flying out there, international Abs team, you're absolutely right. Having the skills developed in South Africa and Africa. So are we getting there, Noel? Yes, we are getting there. And there are a number of organizations, uh, companies, production companies. I mean, the, it's, there's one production that I will, I will, I will, re, I'll keep on reminding everybody about because, because this happened before the pandemic. There's a, 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 a Natio series being produced right now called Queens, and it's being produced by, I forget, the, they're going to kill me, but I forget their production company name, but they're based in, 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 in the UK. But back in September last year at Jackson, at Jackson Wild Summit, they were saying, we are looking for African crew that we will, that who we want to work in, in it. They're filming in various countries across Africa and they wanted to work with the African crew on the ground um, and, and, and developing African crew on the ground or giving them access to um, the, the cameras, to, to, they would come and spend some time and then they would, uh, you know, and, and teach them and, and develop them. And then COVID fast forwarded, it, you know, and they've been doing it. Uh, from just before COVID and then, and, and they were lucky in that they had already started doing it so that when COVID hit, they were, they were already ahead of the game, you know, they had the skills and yes. And, and there's, there's a perfect example of it happening. They are, like I say, there are so many of the, um, big production uh, the broadcasters and production companies and houses are now saying that their needs, they are driving a diversity mandate and they're driving uh, a mandate where they are saying, oh, there needs to be some level of skills transfer. There needs to be a, um, you know, we need to put more diversity on screen. Um, and until they start enforcing that and until they start making sure that happens, you know, and well, they are now making sure that happens. And that's why I'm so excited and have so much hope for this industry, because um, these opportunities are, are happening. And the, the most amazing thing is everybody's going to benefit. You know, the, the uh, white nature and wildlife filmmakers that, are, that with all the years experience, they are also going to benefit because more content is going to be produced. They would be able to work on our films. They would be able, I mean, we are producing a, a documentary feature later this year, okay? And we have no qualms about the fact that we are going to have, we are going to pay experienced white, um, white South African filmmakers who are more than prepared to share their knowledge and mentor a, a strong group of emerging black African filmmakers. That's partnership, you know, and, and everybody's being paid in the production and we are all growing, you know, and, and that's the most important thing is I, I understand sometimes that people have fears and people are get, you know, um, and, and that's why, but, if we join together and we partner with each other, we will grow this industry and we'll all rise up. I love that. That's fantastic. And so you are finding, Noel, that there's been 
from all the stakeholders in the industry, very much a progressive attitude to making this work for emerging filmmakers, but also not only the folks behind the, the camera, but also in front of the camera. Is that right? Yes. Yes, there's, and, and, and let me not just paint, I don't want to be painting a, a picture of only roses here or, or sure. uh, painting a false picture. There are some organizations that are way ahead than others. Yeah. There are some that are being dragged, kicking and screaming to that particular point. Um, you know, I, I heard somebody last year said, you know, we're considering a panel for a, a festival and said, you know, maybe we could nudge uh, these filmmakers into um, incorporating more diversity. I'm like, nudge? Is that really the word you just used? <laughs> you know, um, you know, why should you be nudged to, to do what's right? Yeah. You should just want to do what's right. You know, and and, and so there are there there will be resistance, there will be people who feel threatened, but like I say, it is an exciting time because for those who genuinely embrace it and those who genuinely want to form partnerships, um, it is the, you know, it's, it's a great time to be in this particular industry. We can turn it around. The big challenge is for us in Africa is now really fast tracking the skills of African nature and wildlife filmmakers so that they can take advantage of those opportunities because we are so far behind in terms of being able, you know, being able to take advantage of those opportunities. And there again, we asking people to take a bit of a risk or take, uh, you know, take the chance, you know, um, it's, it's, it's similar to, to one of our programs. We, we, at Congress, we have a competition called Newf Narrator. Um, and, you know, we, we keep saying if everybody says, you know, Mother Earth and um, Mother Nature, we say, then where is the female voice in the narration of nature and wildlife documentaries? Everybody says Africans are natural storytellers. So then where's the African voice in the narration mm -hmm. of nature and wildlife documentaries? And, um, you know, uh, may soul rest in peace. If the world can accept Steve Irwin's accent, they can accept an African accent anytime. Uh, uh, and, and to be representative of, of, of the African continent or from whichever country that that voice comes from. Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Just to just to wrap up Newf, the last limb I just want to quickly touch on is the Newf Community Cinema, which I, I really love the idea of this. I wonder if you can just give us a little summary of, of, of what that outreach looks like. Because of the challenges that in South Africa, most of the um, access to nature and wildlife stories is on 50-50. Uh, still, and if you do not have satellite television, you know, there's nothing really else. Recently, there has been uh, Wild Earth that, that is um, broadcast on SABC3. But if you, you know, we need the, the outreach and to inspire African solutions and African ideas and inspire that next kid who wants to be, who wants to get into 
nature and wildlife storytelling to uh, create the awareness for those kids in those communities that listen, you know, nature and wildlife filmmaking is a career path. There is, conservation is not only about, or nature and wildlife is not only about becoming a god at the, at the game reserve or a ranger. You can do so much more with it. You know, you can become a cinematographer, you can become a, a, a producer, you can become a narrator. Um, and so what we do is we take what we call new community cinema and it's a sort of mobile uh, cinema with a screen projector uh, generator and we find an organization in a uh, uh, far-reaching community or especially rural communities who we can partner with we give them the equipment we access um, the films for them to watch uh, including a lot of the natural history films, because there is joy and wonder in natural history. And very often jo the joy and wonder of natural history is what is, inspires people to want to care for the environment and care for animals. And so in addition to the stories that we're trying to tell and conservation stories that we're trying to tell, we inspire with the, the beauty and the wonder of natural history stories as well. And so... We, we, we find that, that, that partner organization and we create access to, or we give them access to all of these films. We, um, we give them um, the, the, the equipment to use. And then we also ask them for um, local solutions or, or, or things that they believe would help them. For example, we showed our, our good friend in Kenya, Dr. Paula Kahumbu, uh, has got a TV series called Wildlife Warriors. And one of the, one of the programs, one of the episodes was about snakes. And she found a black African snake, uh, a black African herp, a pathologist, uh, who was the, the hero in, in that episode. And um, we showed that in, in a community uh, up just outside uh, Peter Maritzburg. And the solution that came out from there was, there are so many snakes that we encounter on a daily basis. Is there any way, um, and this was at a youth community center that the film was shown where the community, the new community cinema is held. They asked us, is there any way that you could help us to identify the snakes in this area, which ones are venomous and which ones are not venomous, as well as who can we call if we encounter a snake, because they were so inspired by, because the natural thing to do as an African growing up, when you see a snake, you kill it. That's what we were taught. That's what we thought we are supposed to do. Okay. Um, and so often people were like, but I killed a snake and it's not even venomous. You know, what we're trying to say is you shouldn't kill any snake, you know. Um, but that was this, an idea and a suggestion that came from the youth of that community. You know, and we were able to identify the snakes that exist there. We were able to, to, to print those posters and, and uh, distribute them around the entire township. And we, were, and we had a, a, a snake catcher go and do demonstrations. And now he gets called. He's even, the other beautiful thing about it is he's training a young guy in that, in that community to help catch the snakes because 
he's passionate about it you know <laughs> isn't that a isn't that a oh that's that's what a great story <laughs> exactly and that's impact you know or that's how a film can create impact you know i want to move on to the saint lucia project and again we we sort of briefly touched on this before we hit record um but i wonder if you could i mean and, and you're spending a fair bit of your current energies while you're not you know moonlighting between this and and Newf. can you tell us w- w- what sort of project is going on there what are you researching well at the, at the moment um essentially last year when covid-19 you know like i said when our fear of of covid-19 was um at 100% and our knowledge of it was at zero uh, there was a lot of paranoia and and misinformation and that kind of stuff and what happened was there were a group of uh french tourists who were in holiday at the kruger national one of them was feeling sick he went for a test instead of waiting for the results they continued their holiday and they came up to the um town the holiday town of saint lucia now saint lucia up in northern kwazulu natal is a town that relies solely on wildlife tourism for its existence when these tourists had left uh kruger national the results had come back and they were positive well he was positive and obviously the authorities there was this man out looking for them they came here they booked into a lodge they went for dinner that evening they went on a boat ride the next morning and so you can understand the 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 you know the fear pandemonium the headlines yes absolutely <laughs> you know uh, and and the headlines and and all of that and straight after that we went into this very harsh hard lockdown and for me i i just kept on thinking that that can't be the last thought the rest of south africa or even internationally cannot you know that can't be the last headline about this particular town and this and saint lucia is special because it's part of uh south africa's world first world heritage site uh the isimangaliso wetland park um and the park was proclaimed a world a world heritage site when they rejected mining as a option uh because they 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 there were plans to mine the beaches yeah in the entire park they rejected mining as a as a, as as an option and they wanted to protect the uh natural habitat um you know for future generations but they are always under threat from mining as an as an alternative for commun- economic development uh for surrounding communities and that kind of stuff and so when i knew that this town was going to be significantly impacted by covid-19 and the businesses and the local communities and even the park and the wildlife you know was going to be significantly impacted because international tourism stopped immediately all travel stopped immediately and when the town exists for no other reason how do you know what what's what's going to happen and so i wanted to come and tell a story that went beyond the headlines and so when national geographic sent out a call out for uh uh stories about covid-19 stories that um showcase resilience and um you know people's determination to overcome this 
I knew that I needed to come and tell the story about um, St. Lucia and this, this, this um, town and community and how they, they are dedicated towards um, wildlife and wildlife tourism and that, that they will overcome this and that they are not dead. I mean, one of the headlines in the newspapers literally was that St. Lucia dies of COVID-19. Huh. Um, well, that's true. Exactly. That's a dramatic headline. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. You know, when I saw that, I was like, no, oh. how is this even possible? Oh, no. You know, and so, and so we came and we did this film. Uh, we, we did a short film, uh, mo- most importantly, because we were going to be able to get a broadcast on 5050. Um, it was aimed primarily at South Africans. And the idea was to say, yes, we know international travel is banned, but when we are able to travel again, remember there's the, that there's this park that relies on tourism for its survival, that there's this town and this community that relies on tourism for its survival, and you need to come and help save it. You know, and that was... Um, that's, that was the inspiration for coming to do that film. Uh, a be- the most beautiful, beautiful thing that came out of it was when, it, when we got here, because of the style of storytelling. Now, again, remember, because of what we do as NUF, we had a lot of young Black African filmmakers producing the film and learning and shooting it and that kind of stuff. And then, more importantly, we wanted to put an element of African folklore into the film. And so we found a local Sangoma okay. uh, or traditional healer for the international listeners. Yeah, yeah. Uh, yeah uh, Sangoma means traditional healer. And so we found a, a traditional healer and we asked her to open the film. And the film starts by her, because it was, it, it, the, all of this happened just before the whaling tourist season was about to begin. And so she sits on the beach and she looks out and she talks to the whales and she says, you know, uh, please don't be upset when you come around the corner this year and there are, not, there are no boats to come out and greet you. You know, uh, please understand that we are not upset with you, but there's this disease that has traveled around the world and it has finally reached us. And people are scared and people, and she talks about how the businesses are shut and all the lodges are shut and people are not working and that kind of stuff. And then we go meet those people and they talk about their resilience. We, we go to the lodge that, um, where the French tourists stayed and we listen to them and how, um, you know, you know, their fear and their worry and whether they would be able to survive as a, as a business afterwards and would they always have that stigma. And, you know, and, and, and all of this happened. And at the end, she, she thanks the world and she says, you know, we will, we will get over this and we will get through this because we chose you over mining. It means that every year you will return and every year you will keep coming back. And so remember earlier I spoke to you about the African folklore with um, the, whale. the whales uh, beach themselves as a sacrifice. Mm. And I couldn't make this up. I can't, it's, I can't make this up. I couldn't have written the script any better. But the first beach, the first whale beaching for the entire season 
in South Africa was literally 20 meters away from where she sat. Oh, I just got goosebumps. <laughs> exactly. But, and, there, and there's one more thing. Did you get that on camera? Did you get that on film? The, the beaching? Yeah. No, we were filming. We've, we've, got, we've got videos, like people's cell phone videos and that kind of okay, stuff. Okay, okay. Yep. And there's, so there's photographs and Peter's, people's cell phone oh, videos and that kind of stuff. But what's even more, what's even more important is three, three, three months later, one of our new pitch winners the, the, from the new, new Development Fund that was a, as a marine biologist who was making a story about a community who harvests mussels. And we were helping her make that film uh, at that time. And it's literally, th that community lives just on the, outs on the other side of the start of the park. And when, while we were doing those film, that film, the young guys that were helping her with it, that live in that community, went to her and told her about during COVID-19, when things were so hard and tough, they were able to, one of the reasons they were able to survive was they were able to eat the meat from the whale that had beached. Huh. How special. You know, Isn't that absolutely. amazing? Nature, they, yeah. they uh, and I'm going to draw my own little um, <laughs> bit of wisdom out of this story, protecting nature protected them. Isn't that so special? Exactly. What a story, yeah. Noel. That is so, so special. Thank you. Thank you for sharing that with us. We, we, are, we are past the hour mark, so I'm co <laughs> cognizant of, of taking up your whole day uh, in, in St. Lucia. So what I want to ask you, and, and I think this is a great way to feed into that, is as you said, the world and the oceans are in a particularly bad shape, the worst shape they've been in for as long as we've known, I guess. But for filmmakers who can influence the status quo, who can, who can change, change the way we view the environment, do you have a piece of advice or a lesson for those individuals, those emerging filmmakers, or anybody in front of the camera indeed, who want to be part of the change? You've got to, um, and, and okay, you've said emerging filmmakers, but I think let me start off by speaking to the more experienced filmmakers is that, and again, I'll go back to the point that I keep making that nature and wildlife filmmaking has got to stop being an extractive industry. We are at, as filmmakers and as, as storytellers, we have not had a better, we, there's no better opportunity that we'll ever have than this moment in history. Because of COVID-19, and because of the um, reported origins of COVID-19, having, you know, from a, from a bat to a pangolin and a meat market in China, the stories that we tell about the protection of our natural habitats and about wildlife have never been more important. Number one. Number two, we, we have never had an audience more ready to listen to us than we have at this point in history because COVID-19 literally stopped the entire world. And if we do not stop messing with nature and stop 
messing with, with wildlife. Okay. For me, this is how this is the, the world's or nature's final written warning to us that we have to change. Everybody wants to go back to normal. You know, no, it, it's you will we'll never go back to normal. The world has changed and we've got to change along with it. And so is our behaviors when it, when it comes to storytelling, when it comes to including local filmmakers, when it comes to capacitating local filmmakers, when it's, it comes to creating access and opportunity. Those are the things that we need to do as a matter of urgency because, like I say, there is no more important time in history than now. Thanks, Noel. And more broadly, if you could have a message truly heard by the entire world, what would it be? I know, I know this is a doozy, so, so, <laughs> so, so take your time and you can have a few goes well, if you like. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, my. Um, I think I'll come back to the, 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 biggest the biggest thing that we keep facing as, as Africans is that we are not a continent made up only of um, guides, rangers, and people who sing for you and you get off your safari vehicle. We are fantastic at that and we are proud of, of, of being able to do that. But we are so much more. And come and, you know, come and partner with us to show you how much more we are. Come and be a part of it. You know, I think that's one of the things I would say. Um, you know, I think there's, there is there's a purging and a reckoning that's going on in the world. And I know that we, and because of that, everybody is terrified and, and, and nervous and whatever. But I think it's, it's calling on everybody to make a change and we need to. And I think that's, those are the, some of the important things that we need to take forward from, yeah, you know. Um, it, 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 it frustrates the hell out of me when I see people's um, frustration at the lockdowns and at, um, you know, at, at all the hardships that COVID-19 have brought. You know, the, the crazy thing is, you know, the lockdown measures are temporary. Our president said it the other day um, where he said the lockdown measures are temporary. Death is permanent. Yeah. And, you know, we, we, as long as we are breathing as a human race, we will make a plan. The resilience and the, the spirit uh, of, of uh, that the human spirit overcomes anything, you know, and I think... Nobody, nobody portrays that more than Africans. Um, you know, we, we have been through so much, yet we, I still believe that we give the world its smile. And finally, most importantly, where can people find you and how can they support your work and get involved with NUF? 
So we have a website. We have uh, this is I'm really really bad. <laughs> Don't worry, we'll we'll <laughs> because pragna, pragna, uh, you know I'm the dreamer and my wife is the dream maker. Okay, <laughs> so I have all the ideas, but when it comes to the social media stuff and all of that. Damn, I'm bad. <laughs> don't, don't worry, no. We'll include uh, links to the sh in the show notes. So um, we'll, um, yes, yes, we'll, yes. we'll reach out separately and we'll get all those details for all you listeners who want to jump on board, um, have a look at new, follow along. And uh, we, we're just so thankful, Noel, that you've shared this with us. I, I, I really feel so inspired and, and proud to be South African. I, I am so proud. And, and really looking forward to following along your journey and watching you guys succeed and um thank you again for joining us thank you so much Lyle, and uh please pass my regards to joy as well um it's really great to 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 be a part of this thank you for for this platform thank you for the work that you do i've gone through uh, uh quite a few of the other podcasts uh since 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 meeting you guys and um, it's, it's, it's really important that, you know, you guys continue this platform um, because it is extremely important that we, we, we amplify the voices that are trying to create change and impact uh, the protection of our natural wealth. Uh, I couldn't agree more and we'll, and we'll continue to do as much as we can on our side um, to try and to try and do that. Thanks. Thanks so much, Noel. I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I did. I, for one, have a whole lot less eco anxiety knowing Noel is out there unlocking barriers and developing environmental advocates we so desperately need. If we can change the storyteller, we can change the story. We are behind him a hundred percent and we'll be following his journey closely. As always, thank you for listening and we'll catch you next time.